0: Well, good evening. It's just an enormous pleasure to be able to welcome you eventually to this twice-postponed Bishop Dunn Memorial Lecture. Um, We were hoping first to have this event in 2020 and then again in 2021. So you've been a very patient and no doubt now somewhat eager audience. Well, the good news is I know that the evening is going to more than fulfill those hopes and expectations I'm just going to do a few introductions before um, asking Bishop Robert to lead us in prayer and then handing over to Archbishop John for the lecture. Most of you here will be familiar with the backstory to the Bishop Dunn Memorial Lecture. You'll remember that um, Kevin Dunn was ordained as Bishop of this Diocese on the Feast of St. Bede, 2004, and that... um, well, is it coincidence or not? One never knows these things. That was the very point at which the first steps were being taken uh, within Durham University that would eventually lead in 2007 to the formal <clears throat> joint establishment of both the Centre for Catholic Studies and the Bede Chair of Catholic Theology. And Kevin Dunn, from the outset, was a really keen supporter of this venture. It was under his direct personal leadership that the Diocese of Hexham and Newcastle became a core foundational partner without which the bead chair simply wouldn't have happened. And that, of course, was alongside and with the even more remarkable support of the Sisters of Mercy of Oakley and the Sisters of Lara uh, ensuring that this could all become a possibility. Now, of course, sadly, Bishop Kevin died on the 1st of March 2008, which was two months before the public launch of the Centre for Catholic Studies and the Beach, uh, But as a mark of appreciation and also a mark of Durham University's desire to continue in active partnership with the diocese, the Vice-Chancellor, nay less, immediately announced the establishment of this annual memorial lecture. And its purpose, really, is very simple. It is to engage a pressing topic of the day in in an informed but accessible way in service of the pastoral health of the life of the local church. Now, as well as... Many members of the diocese under the leadership of Bishop Kevin, sorry, Bishop Robert here this evening. We are delighted to have the leadership team of Oakley um, with us this evening. Sister, Adri- Sister Adrienne, um, Josepha, and Francis, uh, who have recently confirmed a second really substantial financial commitment to the Center for Catholic Studies, this time to our core endowment. Um, To help ensure the long-term stability of the Centre for Catholic Study leadership, administration, and the collective life, the collective endeavour of the CCS, rather than simply individual posts into the future. It's a really great thing you've done, sisters, twice over now, and all here, and for long, long into the future, are enormously in your debt. We really thank you from the bottom of our hearts and please, God, others will be inspired to follow in the steps you've taken and the commitment you've made. And if that is not all blessing enough, um, we're also delighted to have with us this evening Sister Dr. Barbara Stafford of the Sisters of Lara Trett. Barbara has been walking with the Centre for Catholic Studies, if this is not a mixed metaphor, since before it was even conceived never mind before it took its first tentative steps. And Barbara is still walking with us as she offers regular accompaniment to us and sage advice. So it's a great, great welcome owing to you as well, Barbara. And welcome also to James Stevenson and Will Kent of Porticus UK. Yourselves and your colleagues have been such creative and supportive companions from as far back as 2005. And I want to make a brief shout-out also to Sir Christian Sweeting, who has been such a key force uh, behind our ability to grow the History of Catholicism program, which has been so significant for us. So rather than having too much bobbing up and down, uh, before asking Bishop Robert to lead us in prayer... Let me also um, introduce our speaker for this evening, Archbishop John Wilson. A a native of Sheffield, strong and northern as they say on Henderson's liqueur for those who know Sheffield culture. Uh, A native of Sheffield, John Wilson studied theology and religion at Leeds University prior to formation for priesthood at the Venerable English College where he studied a second baccalaureate in theology at the Gregorian and a license in moral theology at the Alphonsiana. And he was ordained priest for Leeds in 1995, following which there was four years of pastoral ministry, prior to six years serving here at Ushur, first as lecturer in moral theology and then also as vice-rector, where indeed we overlapped as colleagues. And John, uh, Archbishop John kept himself busy during these years by... Uh, also completing a PhD, as though he didn't have enough on with preparing lectures and the rest of it, under the supervision of the redoubtable Professor Anne Lodes here at Durham University. Following that um, were seven years as Episcopal vicar, and this is significant for this evening, for evangelization in Leeds, together with significant prison chaplaincy experience and more years uh, of pastoral ministry. Then in November 2015... He was appointed auxiliary bishop for Westminster and, interestingly, titular bishop of Lindisfarne with a really wide-ranging portfolio of responsibilities during those years. And then in June 2019, appointed archbishop of Southwark installed July 2019. So with this deep, wide academic formation and wide-ranging pastoral experience with, de- with a developed interest in evangelization, he really is the perfect presenter for this year's Bishop Dunn Memorial Lecture On the title, under the title, Is the Gospel Really Good News? Catholic Evangelization and Catechesis in the 21st Century. We're delighted, Archbishop John, to welcome you back, and we first
1: invite Bishop Robert to lead us in prayer. Thank you very much, Paul. I'd just like to begin, not by praying, but to welcome uh, Archbishop John. It's a personal pleasure for me to have him in our diocese, and uh, I just wish you could stay a bit longer. But uh, anyway, it's good to have you, uh, John, and uh, welcome. And welcome to all of you as well, to, to Um Long been a place of study a place of a, a location really of catholicism in the northeast and uh, let's hope it stays that way uh, for the time for, for in the in the future so if we turn our minds to the lord now and we ask the grace of the holy spirit to be with us to guide us to lead us and to inspire us Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit and they will be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom pray for us, in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. (coughs) Bishop John.
2: It's a great joy to be here this evening, so thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, They say you should never start with an apology, don't they? But uh, this is not my normal voice, it's slightly scuppered by a bit of a cold sort of flu-y thing. Which isn't COVID, so please uh, don't worry that I'm going to breathe any germs on you. Um, I've been tested frequently. Um, After postponement last year due to the pandemic, um, it is a great pleasure to be here this evening and to be back at Ushon. As was mentioned, I lived here for six years while on the seminary formation staff, and I attempted to teach moral theology. Um, I'm not sure whether it's more art or science. but it was certainly more perhaps trying than achieving. One of my students while I was here, later ordained a priest, with whom I lived for a time, shared something with me of his insight into my teaching style. He said this particular day he was going to place a bet on the Grand National and asked if I wanted to do the same. Why not, I thought to myself, but not being an aficionado of horse racing, I asked him to choose any horse he thought suitable. Much to my delight, the horse he chose for me won, at odds of eight to one. What made you choose that particular horse, I asked him. Well, he said, I thought of your approach to teaching at Ushaw. The horse was called Comply or Die. <laughs> Along with my affection for this place and for its people, I am honoured to be associated with the memory of Bishop Kevin Dunn, whose service as Bishop of Hexham Newcastle seemed all too short. I first met Kevin in 1989. We were both sent to an Italian-language boot camp in Chorley before going out to Rome. Me for seminary formation, Kevin already a priest, to study canon law. He delighted in the first sentence he managed to construct in Italian. Stoke-on-Trent, he said. E il centro del mondo. (laughs) The centre of the world. I was on the staff at Ashore when Bishop Kevin made his first visit to celebrate Mass. Standing vested in the sacristy, I glanced across at him in all his episcopal finery. He caught my eye, and with a twinkle in his own eye said, John, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. (laughs) Little did I know then of his prophetic qualities. Is the gospel really good news? The beginning of a response to this question, which is all this talk can hope to be, and the implications of this question for evangelization and catechesis, Starts with understanding the Gospel as more than the accounts of the four evangelists, important and indispensable, though they surely are. The words for Gospel, Evangelion in Greek, Evangelium in Latin, and God's spell in Old English, all translate literally as good news. But this Gospel we are speaking about is actually the entire charisma, the full preaching, the full proclamation of salvation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news is inseparable from the person, ministry, and mission of Christ. And so to ask whether the gospel is really good news therefore poses a more fundamental question. Is Christ really good news? If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. This sentiment can perhaps help us reflect together on the theme of this evening's presentation. It conveys something of how the gospel was originally encountered in and through the person of Christ. And how it was then passed on to others and eventually... To us, those of us who are believers, this encounter with Christ, which happened to our forebears in faith, in the Church, through the Holy Spirit, can and does happen to us. Let's take a moment to pose some questions for personal and silent consideration. No shouting out your answer. Just keep it to yourself. Just look for a moment into your own heart. Biblically, the centre of your being. Ask yourself, what does the gospel mean to me right now? Is the gospel good news for you right now? And if yes... Why is it good news? And if no, why not? To put it another way, what difference does the gospel make to your life? When the first disciples met the Lord Jesus by the lakeside, something transformative came alive in their hearts and minds. So remarkable and compelling was their experience and relationship with Christ that they wanted to tell others They wanted to share his message. They believed that what had happened to them not only could happen to others, but was in fact meant to happen to others. To be a disciple of Christ was inherently also to be a witness of Christ. Even if, as we know, things were not always straightforward for the twelve or their successors up to the present day the reception of faith and the transmission of faith were interdependent. What we have received we must also transmit. Whether our spiritual antennae has all the efficiency of modern digital technology or is as precarious for those old enough to remember as a wire coat hanger plugged into the back of a black and white television set. The gospel is something to be received and transmitted. It grows and spreads implicitly and explicitly through words and actions by being given away. Personal faith in the gospel kerygma points us and others to Christ. It's always helpful to be reminded that even faith the size of a mustard seed is potent. A faith which prays, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Or, Lord, increase my faith, is nonetheless real faith. The prayerful perseverance of a disciple's heart, a trusting heart, that despite everything and through everything, knows that faith in Christ makes more sense of life than life does without him. Archbishop Fulton Sheen knew the practical import of this. If you do not live what you believe, he once said, you will end up believing what you live. St. Augustine put it another way. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Faith in the gospel, received and accepted, grows by transmission, by evangelizing proclamation, and this prepares the way for initial and ongoing catechetical formation. What happened to those first disciples has happened to us who are Christians, and we want it to happen to others, do we not? The answer is yes. Just nod. St. Paul applied the acceptance and transmission of faith to the very source and summit of the church's worship. Referring to the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians, he wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he received from Christ, the good news he received from Christ, had to be delivered and handed on. It became part of the deposit and tradition of the church's faith, part of our rich apostolic inheritance. Commenting on St Paul's Eucharistic understanding, the scripture exegete, Raymond F. Collins notes, what was at issue when these verbs to receive and to deliver were used was a living tradition firmly rooted in the memory of the past and fully applicable to the lives of those to whom it was being transmitted the recovery of what it means for the church today in faith to receive and transmit the gospel relates directly to our contemporary approaches to evangelization and catechesis. At stake here is both the act of faith, how we believe, and the content of faith, what we believe. Neither of these can be separated from the interior life of grace, nourished by prayer, the scriptures, and the sacraments, nor from fellowship and an active apostolate. In this, we look again at the acts of the Apostles for inspiration. So that their acts become, in some sense, in some concrete sense, our acts too. Now, if you really want to know whether the Gospel is good news, probably the best thing that could happen is for me to sit down and shut up. And for the disciples of the Lord, here amongst us, to come and speak about what he means to them. The proclamation of the gospel cannot, or more rightly should not, be separated from the magnalia dei, the magnificent works of God in our lives. This is why the testimony of saints is so encouraging, both those formerly canonized and countless others who give witness to God's action and presence. I am fascinated by the conversion of the reckless, promiscuous French murderer, Jacques Fesch, guillotined in Paris in 1957 for shooting dead a policeman. His is an incredibly complex life. Once utterly derisive of faith, he had an intense religious experience In 1955, while he was in prison awaiting execution. And in his letters and diaries, he described it like this Little by little, I was led to change my ideas. I was no longer certain that God did not exist. I began to be open to Him, though I did not as yet have faith. I tried to believe with my reason, without praying. Or praying very little. And then at the end of my first year in prison. A powerful wave of emotion swept over me. Causing me deep and brutal suffering. Within the space of a few hours. I came into possession of faith. With absolute certainty. I believed. And could no longer understand how I had ever not believed. Grace had come to me. A great joy flooded my soul, and above all, a deep peace. In a few instants, everything had become clear. It was a very strong, sensible joy that I felt. I tend now to try, perhaps excessively, to recapture it. Actually, the essential thing is not emotion, but faith. In the early hours of the day of his execution... Jacques Fesch could affirm with certainty these words. In five hours, I shall see Jesus. The gospel was certainly good news for him, as it has been for countless others facing death. The gospel is and has been good news for people in times of desperate turmoil, and in the humdrum monotony of daily life, we probably all know someone whose life shines or shone with faith, with the gospel. Whose life is good news because of Christ. I remember celebrating the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Monday Thursday in St. Joseph's Parish in Bradford. And as the Blessed Sacrament was processed around the church to the Altar of Repose parishioners, some of them very advanced in age, bowed low in adoration as the Lord passed by. It is often in the very ordinariness of life that faith, as a response to the good news of the gospel, plays itself out and holiness is sought. Isn't it the most audacious claim to say that the creator of the universe knows you and me? That the Creator of the universe loves you and me. That the Creator of the universe calls you and me. Individually and communally, in the family of the Church, our seemingly mundane lives are capable of receiving and transmitting gospel faith, of witnessing to its truth and compassion, of signposting and handing on the power and the beauty of Christ. In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis recalls our baptismal vocation to witness to the gospel of good news. He writes, All of us are called to offer others an explicit witness to the saving love of the Lord, who despite our imperfections, offers us his closeness, his word and his strength, and gives meaning to our lives. In your heart, says Pope Francis, you know that it is not the same to live without him. What you have come to realise, what has helped you to live and given you hope, is what you also need to communicate to others. To get back to the question as to whether the gospel is really good news isn't the answer obviously a resounding yes. This talk would be much shorter, wouldn't it, if I'd just said that at the beginning. I would say it most certainly is. It is a resounding yes. The gospel is a message in person, a message of God's love, a message of God's forgiveness, which comes to life through the church in a living heart-to-heart relationship with the Lord Jesus. But let me add a caveat which I hope will make sense and detract nothing from what I've just affirmed. A few years ago, I attended a national conference of diocesan personnel, working in the field of evangelization and catechesis, and we were put into the inevitable, torturous small groups. And at a certain point in our discussion, someone posed this question, but is the gospel really good news? That experience back then was the stimulus for the title of this talk. And a silence fell upon the group as people looked aghast. Yet, as we explored what the questioner meant, we began to understand the point they were trying to make. The 18th century Anglican cleric John Newton, a convert to the anti slavery movement, wrote the beautiful hymn How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It feels completely alien to suggest the gospel might not be good news for everyone. But, but, might someone's personal circumstances, whatever they are, might they render a person incapable of receiving the gospel as good news? Do you remember when the Lord Jesus taught the inspiring truth about himself as the bread of eternal life? Not everyone among his listeners was able to receive this as good news. When many of his disciples heard this, writes St. John, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It is not impossible to imagine scenarios today where people might not be open to receiving the gospel as good news where they might not be capable of welcoming the word of life or might even be actively hostile to it I was on vacation a few years ago actually in Greece and my parents when I went to university said we'll we'll always help you to pay for a summer holiday so um, they said "You know, as long as you're a student we'll, we'll support you so I was three years as a student at university six years as a student at seminary And then four years as a postgraduate student here. um, Now I don't want to deprive them of the habit, so they bankroll my summer expeditions. I tell them it's like a sort of long drawn out wedding present that they never gave me. So I was on vacation a few years ago and saw someone in the distance wearing a t shirt with the words, We all have Jesus. It was remarkable. This person is on holiday and they're evangelizing. And only when they came closer could I read that in between the larger words were smaller ones. And the T-shirt actually said, we all have imaginary friends, but I don't call mine Jesus. It was, in fact, counter-evangelization. I have a T-shirt which I wear and hold on holiday. on the back. It says, I pray the rosary in big letters. The impact of new atheism of secularized humanism, the devastation of abuse, hypocrisy, and scandal within the church, the human traumas, tragedies, and trials of life, a supposed harsh and judgmental moral code, the perceived exclusion or critique of certain groups, all this and more besides, not least the call to conversion of life, can and does turn some people off Christianity in general and the Catholic faith in particular. Rightly, we all love the compassionate response of the Lord Jesus to the woman caught in adultery, recorded in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. But we're all slightly less comfortable with the Lord's words at the end of verse 11. And from now on, do not sin again. A new life in Christ may sound great until we realise it probably means we have to change. Does any of this prevent the gospel being good news? As the offer of forgiveness and salvation in Christ, of course it doesn't. But it can and does make the gospel more challenging to proclaim and harder for some to accept, especially if it's announced without gentleness or sensitivity. The story is told of a man seized by evangelical zeal who rushes into a pub and shouts, I've good news for all of you. And everyone stirs expectantly and sits up ready to listen. I've good news, he says, about Jesus Christ. And everyone slumps back down again. Another difficulty for evangelization, let alone catechesis, is that for some people the gospel is old news. It's never been properly explored, let alone experienced, but there's just been enough exposure to judge the message and reject it. If our only encounter with the Gospel is a placard on the high street announcing the end is nigh, or the wages of sin is death, none of us might be that open to this so-called good news. In a context of indifferentism Lapsation and rejection of faith and with the fallout from a global pandemic and only a partial return of congregations we can find ourselves second guessing the future the viability of our parish and school communities and even our very ability to evangelise effectively but but here's the crunch point the church's first responsibility is to believe the gospel our first responsibility as disciples is to believe the gospel. Everything else, or mission or ministry, flows from this cradle. Whatever the state of the church, the world or our lives, every disciple is called each day, as on Ash Wednesday, to repent and believe in the gospel. When Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? We know what those words mean. With him we also affirm that Christ has the words of eternal life. That we have believed and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God. The message that God loved and continues to love the world. That he did so and does so so much that he sent his only son. So that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. This message, this gospel, this good news remains our ecclesial raison d'etre. The missionary church was, is and always will be born in faith from the resurrection as a charismatic light to the nations. We uphold the gospel as good news because it is implicitly a theodrama directed by God in person, in the person of his Son. In himself, Christ is both the personification and the proclamation of divine loving mercy. There can be no gospel, no evangelization, no catechesis, without a Christocentrism through which the Church and each disciple encounters constantly anew the living presence and word of Christ here and now. Through the action of the Holy Spirit, what happened to those first disciples has happened ever since. Through the Church's mission, such that it is no longer I who live, it is no longer you who live, it is we who live, it is Christ who lives in us. In the words of the great Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, our baptismal certificate is a page from the history of Christ's life. Should we be surprised that the inbreaking of God's kingdom, accompanied by a call to radical repentance, might not find easy or universal welcome? Probably not. Should we wonder that a call to love without question, to forgive one's enemies, to give away one's possessions, to keep faithful in marriage, to respect human dignity, to embrace the weakest, the poorest and the most detestable, might not be especially popular. Were these the slogans of politics, self-interest would probably mean the party never got elected. But these are not disembodied mantras to fuel a self-improving society. These are God's ways. This is good news, revealed and communicated in time and space through a saviour who sought election to the cross and won victory over the grave. When reduced to rules, to do's and don'ts, the call to conversion in Christian life will unavoidably appear unpalatable, unfashionable to those within the church, let alone outside. None of us are converted to rules. None of us. We are converted to a person to a relationship. When we know ourselves to be loved by the Lord, then we want to follow him. We want to love him. The great challenge we face is to introduce people, some of whom may already attend our churches, but introduce them to encounter the Lord Jesus personally as a friend. And essential to this is learning to pray. Our outer Christian life, our aspiration to live like Christ and to serve him in others only finds authenticity when rooted and nourished in our inner relationship with the Lord. As Paul said, I studied moral theology in Rome, the Alphonsiana, and I followed a course entitled Il Peccato, Un tradimento della libertà, sin, a betrayal of freedom. The good news mission of Christ, the second Adam, was to resolve definitively the problem generated by the first Adam in Eden. God's great condescension, accepting the limitations of our human flesh through the Incarnation, is ordered purposefully to the restoration of our fundamental freedom as children created and recreated in God's image and likeness. Jesus went into Galilee, St. John's Gospel tells us. There he proclaimed the Gospel, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe. Believe. The call to life in the kingdom is an invitation to live within God's gift of freedom. Discipleship is not unbridled autonomy, but a participation in the life of the Spirit, experienced fundamentally as a captivating conversion. The Gospel, then, as good news, hinges on hearing the call to repentance, to metanoia, and the renewal of our hearts and minds so as to live a new kind of life, a new kind of life in Christ, for our sake and the sake of the world. turning to Christ our saviour conforming to Christ as Lord requires real and personal change perhaps significantly for some and whether the gospel is good news or bad news perhaps depends on the extent to which having met Christ really and becoming a new creation in him is attractive and whether leaving old ways behind is desirable St. Paul didn't mince his words Writing to the Christians of Ephesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. For six years, I worked as a sessional chaplain at Her Majesty's Prison, Leeds. Uh, Affectionately known as Armley Jail, or if you were in there and you didn't want anyone to know, you said you were staying at Gloucester Terrace. One of the great joys was to see people, in this case men, it was a men's prison, come to deepened faith after making mistakes, sometimes by committing serious crimes. I worked with two outstanding religious sisters. I remember being there on Christmas Day one day, and um, they were short-staffed. So Sister Kathleen, who was the real chaplain, had um, had to take someone to a wing. So she locked me in a little sort of vestibule between the chapel and the main prison, little small room. Me and, a, and another another prisoner. Me and the prisoner. <laughs> another prisoner. Uh, so we got chatting while we waited for Sister Kathleen to come and let us out. So I said to him, gosh, it must be, must be really miserable to be in here at Christmas. He said, oh, it's awful. He said, and what makes it worse is that my, my padmate is going home in a few days and all he keeps talking about is his Christmas lunch, going to the pub, seeing his family. To which I said without thinking, gosh, I bet you could kill him. He said, father, that's what got me in here. <laughs> And I have never been as as pleased to see a nun with a key in my life to come and let me out. Now, working with these two wonderful sisters, it was not uncommon for prisoners to seek baptism, confirmation, and Holy Communion, the sacraments of initiation. And the beginning of the rite of Christian initiation of adults always strikes me forcefully. The candidate is asked, what do you ask of God's church? And he or she replies, faith faith what does faith offer you they are asked next they reply eternal life this is eternal life the priest or bishop continues to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent Christ has been raised from the dead and appointed by God as the Lord of life and ruler of all things seen and unseen that's why the gospel is good news Here's how one prisoner I had the privilege of baptising described his experience. The day you baptised me, I was so proud. As soon as I got back onto the wing, I phoned my mum to tell her how happy I was. And my mum said that she was really happy for me, and that made me even more happy. I've told everyone that I was baptised In the chapel. For that young man, the gospel really was good news. When St. Paul asks us always to be happy in the Lord, to be joyful in our faith, that prisoner knew what it meant. In a spiritual sense, he'd found freedom. His faith made him an evangelist, as he too told his story of what happened as he met Christ on the way of life. The church, and with her every disciple, is charged with presenting to our world the gospel as good news, as a means to life in its fullness. Indifference, disbelief, ridicule and opposition do not render the gospel powerless. Of course the church should be repentant for the sins of her members. Of course, she should rightly be contrite and humbled by her failures for not living and witnessing to the truths of faith. But the Church also needs to proclaim the Gospel of Christ with confidence. A Gospel which is good news, ever ancient, ever new. What does all this mean for evangelization and catechesis in the 21st century is a big question. So not in any specific order of importance, here, by way of conclusion, are some practical things, I think, worthy of consideration for parish communities, where the grassroots mission really needs to take place. First, we need to recognise that evangelisation as the proclamation of Christ and catechesis, formation in Christian faith, are related but distinct realities. Both have initial and ongoing expressions. We can, and we do, however, mistake teaching truths of faith for actually helping someone to personally encounter the Lord Jesus. It's not the same thing. Of course, we need to do both. But with clear intentionality and progression, formation in faith, including sacramental catechesis, needs to flow from and build upon a living relationship with Christ. We need to teach people to pray. In the widest senses, teaching people to pray and to develop their spiritual life is essential for growth and mission. Added to this, immersion in the scriptures and devotional opportunities are all strength in the life of faith. But we need to teach people to pray. A welcoming church community is vital. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? But it's not always a reality. We could ask ourselves, what might it it like to come to our church for the first time? Often too much about parish life is taken for granted. It expects the same people, it looks to the same people to be involved. Could we review our parish through the eyes of a newcomer, an inquirer? This is a struggle because we don't really think new people are going to come. This is part of the problem. Could we expect new people to come, inquirers to come, and think about what it's like for them to walk through our door and prepare accordingly? Lay leadership and participation in the mission of the parish is indispensable, both for the sake of the mission itself and for the good of the people involved. This applies to all initiatives regarding evangelisation, catechesis, and social outreach, and includes administration. We need to equip parishioners properly for missionary discipleship and to encourage volunteering at all levels. This includes apologetic formation, which explains the Church's teaching, so that we can respond to the objections to Christianity and Catholicism sometimes voiced in the home and the workplace. Someone once said, heard it recently, no one is hugged into atheism. There's a need for articulate apologetics We need to invest in the midweek, in the spiritual and faith formation that joins the dots between Sunday Mass attendance. Prayer groups, study groups, targeted pastoral groups, all enhance the parish community and serve the interdependence of believing and belonging. And essential here is focused support for evangelisation and catechesis, towards and within the family, and for children and young adults. We should ask, what is our parish doing for our wider Catholic community? More importantly, alongside that, what is our parish doing for our wider non-Catholic community? It might not be something explicitly religious, a contribution to the common good, a support for the poor and the needy, helping people experience Christ's love, as it were, anonymously, with no strings attached. It would be interesting to ask, what is your parish known for, in the community where it's located and to survey the members of the community not the parish for the answer we might think we're known for wonderful things but nobody else knows it is there a culture of invitation in our parishes would you happily bring a non-Catholic friend or colleague to mass or another event in your parish how inviting would it be for them How do we make that threshold more accessible? We know that liturgy and faith are bound together. How we worship expresses what we believe. So, how might our liturgical celebrations draw people more closely to the mystery of Christ's presence, his love, and his mercy? How are they permeated with hope, which calls people to seek that which is above? Rooted in our Catholic social teaching, What are our communities doing in solidarity with the needy and the suffering at home and abroad? In the work of justice and peace, in the defence of human life and the care of creation? Finally, but importantly, in what ways is our parish a group of disciples journeying holistically, individually and communally, on a pathway of conversion? How is our parish moving forward joyfully? to bring to life the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit as light to the world and salt to the earth because naming and celebrating this is key for our confidence in mission. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story and then give you a conclusion and then I'm going to shut up. When I was an Episcopal vicar in Leeds I lived in Bishop's House which is near Hinsley Hall any of you who might know Hinsley Hall And it was then, it's become a bit more gentrified, it was then a a large student area. And so we got a lot of noise uh, on the street from students, um, including the fellow who had a drum set across the road. Um, So as I came back one day um, from some event in my car, uh, I could hear the exhaust going on the car. And it sounded, as I drove it up North Grange Road, it sounded like a tractor terrible sort of grumbling noise and I had a long journey to make the next day so I thought well I'll I'll take it to the garage in the morning to Albert Tyres which is a garage opposite the entrance to Hinsley Hall so I got up early not knowing if the garage was open actually drove my car down the road it sounded horrendous and I was delighted because all those students who had come in late (laughs) and were probably having a line on a Saturday morning were now suffering the noise of my car it was a little bit of payback, uh, God forgive me uh, anyway, I got to Albert and it was open. It was open. So I went in and uh, I said to the man behind the counter, a young fella, I said, oh, thank God you're open today. Uh, I said, my car, the exhaust, I think, is falling off and I've got a long journey to make. Can you fix it? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, um, I said I'm surprised you're you know, you're open on Saturday morning. He said, oh, we have a, a boss who's a slave driver. He said, so, yeah, we're working today. He said, he said are, you, are you working today? So I, um, I didn't have a clerical, I had a clerical shirt on, but I didn't have the sort of white bit in, and the shirt was open. I was the Episcopal vicar for evangelization. <laughs> <clears throat> so I said, uh, I said, yes, I'm working today. I'm actually I'm going to speak at something later on today. And he said, oh, wh- wh- what do you do? Episcopal vicar for evangelization. <laughs> so I ummed and ahed about whether I told him what I did, because I've had this experience before. You get sat on the inside seat of a transatlantic flight, and somebody says to you, what do you do? And you tell them you're a priest and they regale you with the top ten evils of the Catholic Church for the next six hours. So I thought, well, I'd better own up. And I said, oh, actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a priest, a Catholic priest. Oh, he said, I'm a Catholic. Said, Great. He said, well, my family are Catholics. Uh, I've got an uncle who's a priest in Ireland. He said, my faith is so important to me. He said, me and my wife have just had a little baby. I mean, we're looking to get her baptized. I thought there's a trade-off coming here you fix my exhaust and I'll baptise you I would have done it, I'll tell you, I would have done it but he didn't, he said to me he said, um, he said my faith is so important to me, he said this is how much my faith means to me and he took his overalls down he took his t-shirt off and he turned round and he said that, that's, that's what my faith means to me and on his back was the most incredible tattoo of a crucifix I mean I'm not a tattoo fan, I don't have any by the way either in case you're wondering <laughs> but it was, it was amazing and, and he, he'd evangelised me because he had spoken in his body of Christ and I was gobsmacked As were all the people in the queue behind me <laughs> who wondered what on earth I'd said to this man to make him take his clothes off anyway he put his t-shirt on and that was it he wasn't there when I went back I never saw him again is the gospel really good news? Well, the simple answer is yes, of course it is. It remains good news for every person. Each person loved by God into existence. Each person called through his Son to a life in the Spirit, a fullness of life here on earth and eternally in heaven. Every crisis in the church is at root always a crisis about whether we believe the Gospel, whether we believe that charismatic proclamation of Christ a savior the seedbed of evangelization and catechesis is the strength and practice of our faith in Christ our conviction our witness that the gospel is indeed good news carries the confidence that its proclamation led by the holy spirit bears fruit our personal relationship with christ both head and heart knowledge is the basis for missionary discipleship. There is nothing new whatsoever in saying this. However, the lure of formulas, projects, plans and strategies can sometimes mask the essential demand placed upon the church. That we be people of real and evident faith for whom the gospel is lived daily and joyfully as good news. That we witness to the gospel as both our way of life and our way to life. That we testify in our body that the adventure of conversion while ongoing is not only possible, but also quite wonderful. Thank you very much.
0: so much for a wonderful evening you spoke you've had the courage to speak from the the heart Um, take courage speak from the heart and I think will encourage us perhaps to think how we can um, move out of our comfort zone on occasion and show something of the the particular truth that is in us of the way in which the gospel is enfleshed in its particular way in our lives and brings meaning to it, so that's certainly a takeaway for me. Um, we thank you for that. You. Well, hasn't it been great to be able to have the Bishop done memorial lecture after waiting, um, well, really three years because we've missed two, so it's actually three years since we last had one. So let's show our appreciation to Archbishop John.